Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times. I hope you enjoyed all our extra special bonus content last week. And if you haven't heard it yet, please check out Bridie's bonus episode on the philosophy of action. We've decided to carry on exploring this theme for the rest of the month. And in this next episode, we're asking, how do you make the right decisions? And how might philosophy help us? On the panel is senior lecturer at the New College of Humanities and researcher in the philosophy of action, Naomi Goulder. Reason can have this kind of negative power to to cause us to recognise when we have to chuck out a belief. Professor of Philosophy at the University of Antwerp and film critic, Bensé Nene. We're deeply irrational beings and we can strive to be less irrational, but we're never going to get there. And Director of the Institute of Philosophy at the Institute of Advanced Studies in London, Barry C. Smith. Our emotions are driving us to, to only look at some reasons in one direction and to discount reasons in another. Linda Woodhead hosts. From quitting a job or relationship in the heat of an argument to taking on a new project in the flush of excitement, we tend to think emotional decisions are bad decisions. But could it be that emotion is actually the best guide to action and, as David Hume thought, reason is and should be the slave of the passions? Or is that just a route to chaos and conflict? Well, to answer these questions and to tell us how to make the right decision, I want a practical outcome to this <laughs> debate, please, <Fair> guys. <laughs> <laughs> we have three of the best people to address it who've given this topic a lot of thought and are going to share their wisdom with us. And we're going to start off with Bensa Nane. Bensa, you have three minutes for your opening pitch. Thanks. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to hijack this whole debate. Uh, because I think that the, uh, the decision between Im- emotional or rational decision-making, that's a false dilemma. Uh, all of our decision-makings are emotional, regardless of how rational you think they are. But what I think that what decision-making really is, is imaginative. So I think that one thing that is plays a huge role in decision-making is imagination. So take this example, not at all autobiographical. You get two jobs, uh, two job offers, uh, and you have to decide. So one of them is in a sleepy college town, really boring, no cultural life whatsoever, but excellent philosophy department, brilliant colleagues, amazing PhD students. It's one choice. The other choice, uh, a, um, a job offer in, a, uh, in one of the best cities in the world, the best city in the world, terrible philosophy department, huge teaching load, terrible students, terrible colleagues. What are you going to do? How are you going to decide? Um, but I mean, if you don't like this example, you could also make, you know, should I marry this woman or that woman, or should I get divorced or not get divorced, something like that. 
how are you going? How are we going to making this decision? And I want to remain on the kind of on descriptive level. So I want to uh, talk about how we actually make decisions, not about how we should make decisions. So what I do is that I imagine myself in a situation and imagine myself in a different situation and compare. So that's imagination iteration one. Imagination comes in on a second level because we d I don't actually know what these departments are going to be. I can I just I can imagine what it's going to be. I don't have any information, like full information about what it's going to be. The person who's going to live in these kind of scenarios is not my present self. It's my future self. And my I don't have any exact information about who my future self is going to be. I can imagine what my future self is going to be. So again, I imagine my what I imagine to be my future self to be in this imagined situation. So this is a lot of imaginative episodes, none of which is reliable or in any case kind of tracking the truth. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that if the question is what's going to come, what's going to kind of yield the optimal decision, nothing's going to, this is not going to lead to any kind of optimal decision. But here's kind of a last twist, and I'm going to try to squeeze it into the three minutes. The whole question about what's an optimal decision is a wrong question. Because you can try to think that, oh, what's going to be the optimal decision for my present self? But your present self is not going to be there living in that small college town or that big city. It's going to be your future self. And who your future self is going to be is going to depend on the decision that you're making. Ah. Um, okay, okay. And next up, we have Barry C. Smith. Barry, you have three minutes. Thank you. Um, I very much like what Bensa had to say, but I think it leaves out quite a lot of other things that are important in this debate. So um, Bensa talks about those long-range, long-term decisions. You're trying to decide between two job offers. You've got a very long time to think about it. And actually, having a long time to think about it is probably part of the problem because you're going to weigh it so often. You're going to do all these imaginative exercises and loops. You're going to go up and down that staircase. But I think to be a good decision maker, you actually have to have several decision-making mechanisms, and they operate at different speeds and different scales. If you're in a situation where you have to act very fast to save someone else's life, or maybe to take quick averting action, or you, you're not given time to think about a decision, you need to have something that will produce the right result, that will get that fast. Think of skiing down a hill, and you're heading towards a tree, swerve right, swerve left, or into the tree and die, you really just have to have a system that will simply take that decision for you. You actually don't want to be imaginatively projecting. It'll get in the way and it'll probably slow you down. It's also true that you've got, as well as those long-range decisions, you've got those intermediate decisions where you know maybe you're choosing what to eat, maybe you're choosing what to, what to drink. And I think what makes you a good reasoner is having flexibility to be able to move between those different systems, to be contextually sensitive to know when one system is required or another. Now, we talked about reason and the passions or reason and emotion. Now, of course, it used to be the case prior to the Enlightenment that people thought of reason and the passions as working together. And then, of course, during the Enlightenment, there was a big separation and there was a great stress on, you know, the passions as disruptive, they were sand in the mechanism, if only we could be reasonable, rational thinkers, that was a good thing. And then along came David Hume, the great Scot. And David Hume says, reason is and not only to be a slave to the passions. What an extraordinary thing for a Scotsman to say when they were all very uptight in Edinburgh at that time and trying to think of how to behave properly. That was actually why he wanted emotion in there. And now modern neuroscience is showing us that if you only 
uh, have reasoning and you're not exercising your emotions because you've got some pathology in the insula, you can't actually decide anything. You know all the right reasons to go one way or another, but you don't decide. So emotions are key. Barry, thank you very much. And our final speaker is Naomi Goulder. Thanks. Um, so for Plato, an arch-rationalist, a healthy, happy, and virtuous person will have harmony in their soul. And what that means for Plato is that what their emotions present to them as good or as dangerous will align with what is, in fact, according to reason, good or dangerous. So let's say something in favor of this platonic picture that says that the right way to proceed is to, is to follow reason and to have a harmony in your soul that aligns with reason. So suppose that a little spider is like wandering along under one of those chairs. I'm someone who's terribly fearful of spiders. And so for me, even though thought, pure rational thought, would tell me I shouldn't jump out of my seat if I see it, nonetheless, uh, my emotion, my fear, will make it appear to me to be a very good idea to jump out of my seat. And I'm going to be stuck in this uh, kind of conflicted situation in my soul where the higher part of my soul, the pure thinking, tells me not to jump out of my seat, but my emotional part, which responds to appearances, will tell me that I should just jump out. That's my emotion that's kind of derailing my actions and getting in the way of what reason would propose. So the platonic picture has the harmonious soul not as being one without any emotions. In fact, I think Plato thinks it's very important that we do have emotions, but importantly, the emotions have to be somehow under the service of the reason and that all will go well when, when how things appear to me through my emotional reactions, my fear or whatever, um, will be aligned with how they really are. So that's all in favor of reason. And as a philosopher, I guess we should all be defending reason here because that's our job. Um, but actually, in the case of Plato, I just do want to problematize this because Plato, although he clearly does present it as the healthy case when reason is in control, he doesn't really provide any compelling story for why our pure cogitation, our pure thought, should always give us the right answer and why our emotions should always give us the wrong answers. So I've given examples that kind of make it look like reason was right, but you get other examples like Nomi Apoli in her book Unprincipled Virtue gives the example of Huckleberry Finn in the novel. He <laughs> feels that he wants to free the slave Jim. And so out of a burst of sort of emotional sensitivity to Jim, he frees him. But, uh, but that's out of emotion. In his rational cogitation, he says to himself, oh no, I'm violating the property rights of his owner. He's a slave and I didn't have the right to take him out. And there it looks as though that's a character who has done something right from their emotion, whereas their reason, if they'd followed it, would have led them astray. Thank yeah. you very much. Okay, so to start off, guys, can you tell us how we would go about making better decisions? Spencer. I don't think we can make better decisions. I think that we're hopeless at making decisions, as I just tried to explain. Cause I, um, and I, I'm going to say this, and I, I think Barry is absolutely right. Uh, there's all these kind of different timescales of decision-making, uh, and I, I was focusing on these touchy-feely decisions. You know, Should I get divorced? Should I not get divorced? Should I marry her? Should I marry her? And there are going to be these snap decisions that are going to work very differently. But I, I just don't think it's a good question to ask what whether, you know, how to make a good decision, or how to make a be better decision or a worse decision, because depending on how you're going to decide, that's, gonna, that's what's going to make the decision good or bad, as I was trying to explain at the very end. So if you, if you decide to go to the sleepy college town, 
that's going to change you. You're going to be a uh, workaholic. <laughs> <laughs> and that those are and that certain things are going to make you happy. Because, you know, yay, my paper is published in the Journal of Philosophy. That would not make you happy if you lived in, 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 uh, in this big city uh, and where, you know, they don't care about academia, you just care about having a, a you know, fancy life. So, um, so I think I'm just not sure that's a good question to ask. What's so should we just decision? throw a coin? No, we shouldn't just throw a coin, but I think we should be aware of, regardless of which way we go, it's really our decision itself that's going to fix the success conditions of our decision itself. Okay, Barry. No, I don't, I don't really agree with that. So I think it's difficult to say what would make a good decision, but we know what would make bad decisions, and maybe we should avoid those things. You know, don't drink and dial. Can I say this? It's on camera. When I was head of department at Birkbeck, and uh, colleagues would come up with something particularly irritating or stupid, I would bash out a reply on email, and then I learned to print it off, go and have lunch, come back, and send an altogether moderate reply. And what I did was I collected these printed off uh, <laughs> papers, and I put them in what I call my bastard file. <laughs> and I think, I think if I published that, it'd be a very yes, good read. Be careful with that. I'd be careful, be with, careful that. with that. Yeah. But, but I think it was a bad decision to just email straight away. And we know when, when people are in an email exchange, that's a particularly difficult thing, because email is something that's between speech and writing, you, you say something with the urgency and immediacy of, of speech, it's just said now, and of course speech disappears, where something written So what stays does the pause there. do? How does that help improve it? I think the pause is, is there to tell you whether or not you need diplomacy, to tell you whether or not you're acting out of anger, whether, whether you might even think, this won't help. Even is that if letting I want your to reason in? Well, it's, it's this won't help, and you might be even motivated by your emotions. I want to have my department harmonious. I want my colleagues to, to, to be reasonable. I want to figure out how to get them all to behave themselves. This isn't the way to do it. So I think it's motivated by reason and feeling. So, so if we eliminate bad uh, things that, that would interfere with decision-making, that matters. Another thing is when we shouldn't overthink something, going in the other direction. Bertrand Russell said, caution in all things is good except in love. That's right. You don't want to say, you know, you don't want to do the Benzer thing. Should I really be with this person? Do I really love them? You know, I'm thinking about it. So you've got to go with, you know, what We won't think. ask about his personal life. Let's not. Naomi, you're teaching philosophy. Uh, can you tell us how to make a better decision? And does learning philosophy, for example, help? Uh, yeah, of course, I believe in the power of philosophy. But actually, I, I do think that Plato um, had to take quite desperate measures when he was trying to justify pure reason. Um, so he famously, he, he, Socrates, who he was um, using as his character in many of his dialogues, um, was famous for this elenctic method, which was this um, kind of where you start from something that your interlocutor believes, and then you challenge them, you, get, you sort of get them to continue to, you elicit more and more beliefs, and eventually you lead them to find a contradiction among their different beliefs. And of course, once they see a contradiction, they, they can't hold both of these contradictory claims, so they have to chuck one out. So I think that reason can have this kind of negative power to, to cause us to recognize when we have to chuck out a belief. But Plato didn't really have a very good account of how it could get us to truths. It could get us to chuck out contradictory beliefs, but how could we know that the ones we kept were the right ones? 
rather than the ones we threw away. Um, then he invoked his theory of recollection that said, oh, well, you know, it would be at least brave and interesting and beautiful to think that maybe you knew all of the right answers before you were born and now you're just recollecting them. But that looks desperate. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to say that philosophy is going to help you to know how to make right decisions, not just by helping you to make logical arguments and recognize contradictions, but also by giving you new narratives to frame your situation. And I think narratives are very important in understanding emotions and the um, genesis of action. Thank you very much. Can we think a bit about our society now and the place that reason has in that? And do you think that we still prize reason too highly and that public figures feel constantly under pressure to maybe pretend that it's the most evidence-based rational answer to an issue? So you said this in, the, in, in your first expose that as philosophers, we've got to defend reason. I don't see that. I don't, I'm not a fan of reason. So I think one important thing that, uh, that actually the empirical sciences teach us is that we're deeply irrational beings. Uh, and we can, you know, we can strive to be less irrational, but we're never going to get there. So I think it's just a complete illusion that we can be this perfect irrational being that uh, philosophers often tell us okay, that Okay, but now you're messing with our minds because we think you're a philosopher, you're a professional philosopher, your whole job is to think more clearly about things. So tell us what yeah, your job should, is really we about. Should, yeah, we should clear more... We should think more clearly about how irrational we are. And we should accept, we should, we should acquiesce in our irrationality. I think that's one important thing that we can do. And that's going to make our life a little bit better. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. It seems to me sometimes we might get a kind of feeling um, and I, I guess you both know more about the neuroscience of this, but I, I take it that you can have a physiological disturbance that might be the sort of starting point of an emotion, but that there are different ways to interpret it, right? To what extent it is optional how to interpret our physical reactions to what happens. And I think that is quite interesting. It helps us to understand what the scope of philosophy and literature and so on might be. Yeah, so I'm going to now... Isn't that no, I want to throw that back yeah. to you now. Mm -hmm. Because if we can be better in recognising our emotions through being more mindful or reflective or whatever, isn't, even if we're emotional, there's a better rather than a worse way of being emotional. No? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. So there's better or worse way of being emotional. There's no way of being not emotional at all. <laughs> That's what I'm trying okay. to say. Okay. Barry. We do have these very different bodily signatures. Uh, they're not always so distinct, but different bodily signatures. One thing that we're learning now is that there are people who are very good at internally using the signal they get from their heart that's sent to the brain. So the heart, every time it beats, it sends the signal to the brain. Uh, lovely work by Sarah Garfinkel, Hugo Critchley in Sussex about this. And what's interesting is that some people are very accurate about those changes, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean they're very aware of them, but they're accurate. How do we test that? Well, you put a pulse oximeter on their finger and ask them to estimate how many heartbeats they've had in a minute. 
and they say, I'm just guessing, but some of them are absolutely on the money. They say 47 minutes, 47. Those people, as it turns out, are better able to recognize the emotions of others and also feel their own emotions more intensely. In some way, I think they're more in tune with their emotions. Perhaps for the others, what we want to do with feedback mechanisms is teach people to be able to take note of that signal, have access to that signal, to be more in touch with their emotions. So I think being in touch with emotions will help. But now we've got a second thing to say. How do the emotions and reason fit together? Well, if we want to get beyond the idea of the enlightenment as them being you know, two competing streams and one cedes power to the other or one grabs power, they need to fit. And, and a temptation here is to have a cognitivist view of the emotions. And that's the view that the emotions aren't just raw feelings, there's appropriate anger, or there's fear that was un unreasonable given that the circumstances weren't so dangerous. So you think of the appropriateness. But part of the problem of that, which allows uh, emotions to be reasonable and open to rash, rational thinking, is your example of the spider. You, you want your reasons about how the world is to fit how you have an emotional response to it. I should feel fearful in dangerous circumstances. I should feel annoyed when I've been insulted, but not in other circumstances. Phobic people, if you've ever watched a phobic person on a plane, they react to every turn and twist and noise, and every noise frightens them. And I think what they're doing is their interior arousal is, is ramped up so high, they're looking for external signals in the world to match so that the world and their inside match ration and rational thinking and emotion match, but they're out of touch with reality, and that's a bad thing. Could you use the concept of reason at all? Have you discarded? Or <laughs> 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 so we should be, what should we do with it? What should we do with it? Now we know we're very emotional. Let's take an example, and that's uh, something that we all care about, and we all think that we're really good at, and that's tasting food and wine. We all think that we're very good at telling what we like from the things that we don't like. As it turns out, what we like and what we don't like um, depends heavily. So let's suppose that, you know, whether I like this rosé or not. It's going to be heavily dependent on the kind of music that we're listening to, but it, it really depends on the, on, the, on the weight of the glass. Uh, you know, if you're eating yogurt, how creamy you think the yogurt is going to feel, it's going to depend on the weight of the spoon. There's millions, there's a huge industry out there that Barry has contributed to. And so should we, should we beat up ourselves about it? Should we say that, well, wine tasting is just bullshit or, or the whole, you know, uh, being a foodie is just bullshit because we're completely full? I don't think so. I think, I think we're being completely maximalist when we, when we demand ourselves to be good at identifying some kind of preferences of ours, uh, ours on the basis of one sense only. We are multi-sensual multi beings, so that we know this. The way our sense organs are set up is that they really influence each other. They work in harmony. So, the, so what we hear influences what we see, what we see influences what we hear, what we smell influences how we, how we taste, and so on. There's beautiful, beautiful empirical findings about this. So to think that we should be good at singling out one sense modality and be good at recognizing certain things in that sense modality is just completely ignoring what human nature is. And I want to take this kind of lesson and take it to kind of the human mind in general what the human mind is good at is to make sense of our complicated, emotional world in this kind of uh, global way. What we're not good at is to single out certain, just single aspect of that, for example, the rational aspect of it. We're good at keeping the whole thing together, the emotional, the rational, and so on. 
we're not good at kind of separating out the emotion and focus only on the rational stuff. In the same way as we're not good at just focusing on the taste and completely shutting out all kinds of influences from olfactory and, and auditory. So I think it's all I'm saying, I'm just trying to warn us against kind of setting the bar too high. And I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, not being maximally rational. What's the fun in that? <laughs> Mary, can you reflect on how our lives would change if we made emotions primary basis for our actions? We might think that emotions will frame our actions anyway, whether or not we choose to make them the primary basis. But I think it would be really valuable to, I'm going to now concede something, having been the arch-rationalist, <laughs> sorry, I tried to be. Um, but I think it would be really valuable to acknowledge that our actions are significantly governed by emotion. And although actually what you're saying, you're sort of playing down the sense in which it's useful to think about the emotions in terms of thoughts, and you're kind of playing up the physiological aspect of the emotions, I think if you can think about the emotions more in terms of thoughts, then actually acknowledging that we are emotional creatures gives a whole scope for reorientating our lives in positive ways through literature, through narratives. Think about narratives of oppression or liberation. Uh, you might think that choosing different narratives politically and personally will lead us to make better decisions and actions. Not that one of them is right or wrong, it's like a duck-rabbit diagram. You know, maybe you could just, uh, either of them is okay, but some of them might be better and healthier. So that's what I think. And do you think we're so. in danger of, I mean, are we doing the opposite? Are we overloading our curriculum or our focus away from those sorts of things? I think there is a tendency to do this dichotomy, which in a way you're saying maybe the correct answer, and you're the one that's got the labs that knows this, but, but this dichotomy where emotion would be something kind of purely physiological or physical, and reason would be purely mental or purely cognitive. And I think we have got that dichotomy sometimes in our culture, and that sometimes it would be more helpful to think of something that was in between as being the relevant level at which to engage. Yeah, societal stuff is interesting because I think I, I, I would imagine that some of the reasons why some of the people came tonight is because they're thinking of decisions that are governing our lives. I see a lot of nodding faces there. We think of the votes in the states for the president. We think of the Brexit vote here. And what we notice is that both sides are deeply entrenched in thinking of the other side as having something wrong with their decision making and contemptible in some way. We say, you know, oh, they were just basing it on emotions or, you know, they're basing it on their self-interest and they were not really thinking about the party or they're just thinking about the party, not the country, not thinking about society and so on. That fracturing is really interesting because you often get quite easily mirrored views and it's now leading to emotional attachments to objects in the States, whether you drive a pickup truck or whether you drive, you know, uh, a Toyota is going to be your political. Do you shop at Whole Foods? Do you shop, you know, at uh, Walmart? Everything, all the objects, all the, all the clothes are becoming politicized because of people's emotional attachment to saying, who do I belong to? And then justifying your reasoning to belong to that group and to have gone with the decisions they're making, it shows it's it is highly motivated by emotion, but not letting go of the idea it's reasonable. I mean, I think all of us, I'll come out and say I'm a Remainer, and, and a lot of us were very critical of people voting on the other side, and they often say to you, we're not stupid, you know, and, and that's, that's the, the, the thing you constantly say, as if it was a, a liberal urban elite who are being very contemptuous of the votes of people in, in the regions and so on. And yet you want to say, Ugh, 
Of course, you're not being stupid, but, but you made the wrong decision. <laughs> you know? And that's very visceral when you say that. And I think we can't get away from the, the visceral nature of that. What we're not able to do is put the same set of reasons into the single pod and say, let's uh, examine them as a whole. Our emotions are driving us to, to only look at some reasons in one direction and to discount reasons in another. And I think that's very unhealthy. And I think we've got to fix that. So uh, this is the point when I'm going to take all of it back, or at least some <laughs> of it back, <laughs> some of it back, because I think I think what Barry was talking about is exactly um, is exactly right, and I think that this is a really important societal phenomenon that we have. If we form these global tribes, we could call them these uh, global groups where we may not live in the same place, but we think that we share the same political values. And really, what this is, what makes you think that you're really part of this, uh, you know, the left, left liberal tribe or the Fox News tribe, is something emotional. It's an emotional connection to the other people in this, in this, in this tribe. And, and, um, and I think that's really bad. So uh, if I sounded like I was saying, you know, I was <laughs> coming down on the side of emotions <laughs> or against reason, that's really, that has dangers. Emotions are dangerous things. Uh, and uh, they have to be handled with care. So but you're more worried about collective emotions at times than when you were talking about the individuals. But this is individual, so it's about, it's about you. So I think much of it is about my, my emotions. It's not really an emotion, emotions of a collective. It's and my emotions and, and towards the collective. Right, and many people have said, and I think it's right, that um, <laughs> once you feel that identification with a group, when an issue comes up that you haven't thought about you kind of take that lazy assumption, well, what do my group think about it? And if they think that, that's what I think too. So you're not even prepared to do the work of wondering whether that's the point at which you depart from the group. And that's because of emotional attachment. It's dangerous. Okay, so, ladies and gentlemen, we're out of time. They have taken us around the houses in a delightful and edifying way. Let's show our appreciation. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So, what do you think? Should we be governed by our emotions or our reason? And do we even have a choice? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag Philosophy for Our Times. And remember, we still want to hear your thoughts on who we should interview for our 100th episode. So let us know your favourite episode of the series and what you want us to ask the panel. Email podcast at artandideas.org or you can tweet at IAI underscore TV using the hashtag philosophy for our times.
Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.